Daniel Carrington, of course, with us from the Pet Shop Boys. And we're talking chooks with James Delaney. What better topic, Jim? Thank you very much for joining us today. It's actually been a while since we've spoken to you. Yes, good morning there, Daniel. What a beautiful day. It is a beautiful day, and I bet you're out there with your chooks. I am. <laughs> with the turkeys. And the turkeys, yes, that's the new addition. Look, um, what I wanted to ask you is daylight hours are starting to increase. Uh, the season is starting to change, even though it's still a bit chilly. What are some of the things that we can do to maintain our, our chooks this time of year so that they can start to produce a good amount of eggs once the, uh, the spring starts to hit? That's right, Danny. A lot of people don't understand that. It's the um, nighttime getting shorter and the daytime getting longer that actually triggers that little mechanism within the within the uh, chickens to start laying their eggs. So we're right on uh, the turn of the season now. So it's a great time to do a lot of housekeeping jobs. Um, All the citrus trees will also be flowering shortly and there's nothing better for citrus trees than um, all the cleaning out of the chook house. So... You hear the turkeys oh, that's the, the turkeys, yes. <laughs> that's the turkeys. Can't get better than that. Gobble, gobble, uh, they sound great. Sorry, I just couldn't resist. That's gorgeous, Jim. <laughs> well, I, think, I think they're celebrating winter in July. <laughs> I mean, Christmas in July, they're a little bit nervous. Oh, time. okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's a great time. Clean all your pens out, particularly the housing areas. Scrape up any um, litter that you've got in there, put it around your um, gardens, put it around your citrus trees, your fruit trees, which will be um, opening and flowering soon. Great time to do all that. When you've done that, I'd renew all the litter. And there's lots of people use lots of different things. Um, Spent haze, great. Um, Even people bring home from work paper, um, shredded paper to put in the chookyards. People sweep up all the leaves that have fallen off the trees at this time of year and put that in their chookyards as, as litter. All of that is great stuff. We'll, we'll collect all the chickens' droppings and it'll be great to put on and around the gardens and trees later in the year. It makes good fertiliser, yes. Wonderful. The best fertiliser. Now, what I would suggest people do, it is cold and at this time of the year the mites are usually pretty much under control unless you've got a very warm chicken house. But it's a great time to mix probably two-thirds garden lime with one-third sulphur that you can pick up in a lot of produce stores. Um, And then dust all your perches, dust all your um, sleeping quarters, uh, uh, spread it um, generously in the litter. And as the year goes on, the chickens tend to scratch this up when they're having a dust bath and it puts sulphur and lime dust in their feathers and it helps the um, mites and uh, little insects that can get um, a hold in the chicken house to to not develop as well as they would normally if there was none of that present. So oh, that's a really good idea to, in terms of controlling your mite infestation and light infestation. What about, Jim, are things like worming? Well, uh, remember we've talked about that before and we always like to worm the um, poultry that you have in your backyard at the turn of the season. Mm -hmm. Uh, So coming up in the next few weeks, you should go and visit your local pet stores, produce stores, wherever you buy your worming products and have that on hand. And I would probably, I'll start dosing all of my birds in August. Uh, So we're talking next week. 
And what about in regards to some other things that could crop up uh, in terms of some illnesses, maybe with the chickens? I, I had a, a customer come in and uh, and we we talked about something that was happening to their chicken ended up being sauerkraut. How, how how does that happen, and how do you treat it? Look, uh, sauerkraut can be caused by um, incorrect feeding. Um, the, the chickens picking up bugs from around they are that, that tends to cause a reaction to occur. The, the crop. Does everyone understand the crop is where the bird holds its um, food that it's gathered through the day, and, it, and it's like a big sack that sits at the bottom of the neck, and then throughout the day and throughout the night in particular. The it's like um, if you like it's like a lunch bag that just fills up and it slowly goes into to um, the bird's stomach and the stomach grinds up whatever it's eaten during the day and uh, then it goes through the digestive system. So sour crop can be when the contents of that crop um, get some kind of an infection or the grain that's in there might start to ferment if it's not moving through quickly. Um, one of the things that I always like to do is to put a little bit of um, apple cider vinegar and um, I also like to put a little bit of the, you can buy apple cider vinegar with garlic mm-hmm. in it and that gives you the most beautiful eggs you could ever imagine and will reduce the incidence of sauerkraut. Can I just ask, Jim, how do you know if your chook's got sauerkraut? Oh, look, they get a kind of general malaise okay. and they also the contents of that... Um, sack at the bottom of their neck, it should clear. Uh, if you check your bird first thing in the morning, it sh- you should feel nothing almost there. Um, but if it's not clearing and it's staying really full and the bird doesn't look very happy, I mean, it can happen in all birds, including parrots. They can get sauerkraut. So it should clear regularly. If it's not clearing, you've got a problem. Is there a chance of any coccidiosis happening in, in the chickens at this time of year? Look, um, what we've got to watch out for now is wet weather because coccidiosis um, always strikes when you've got very muddy, wet chicken yards um, and the li- it's, it's like a little parasite that just explodes in the soil when the chickens are walking around. They've got it on their feet and they're pecking grain up that may have fallen on the ground. Uh, that's the time and usually it affects younger birds more so than older birds. Um, and it's very wise. If you know we're going to get a period, even if it's just a couple of days of wet weather and you know you've got a, a yard that tends to go really muddy, I would go straight away to either your pet shop or your produce store and I'd get a coccidious fat. Mm. Talk, talking about um, their feet and, and it being wet, something that came straight to my mind was uh, uh, scaly skin on their feet. What about that? Look, scaly skin uh, is a little mite that goes in under the, the scales, as you said, on the feet, and it makes them look like they're kind of cracking apart. Um, all the little scales, instead of laying flat down on the leg, they actually um, stand up a little bit, and, and, it, and, the, and the chicken's feet look really like scabby, scaly. Now, in the old days, we used to treat that with a number of different oils because the oil would go into under the scale and kill the mite. Um, these days, there are a lot of products on the market which you can put in the chicken's water, which actually kills the mite when they burrow into the skin under the scale. All right. Well, look, thank you very much um, for all that information. Always really good to talk to you. And uh, hopefully that helps some of our listeners in terms of looking after their chooks and getting better egg supply during the spring and summer months.
That's fine. Now, Danny, I understand you're having a Christmas in July celebration on Saturday. Do you want one of the turkeys? Oh, <laughs> sounds delicious. But I, when I saw them last, they were quite big. I don't think they'll fit in my oven. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your Have kind. A good day. You too. Thanks for your kind offer, Jim. Oh, that's Jim Delaney, chook expert. And there's so much involved in keeping really good chickens but at the end of the day when you crack that egg and you've got that golden yolk mm. nothing beats it does it it's true and then the taste of course exactly <laughs> michael from chain valley bay has a question about his goldfish hello michael. yeah yeah how you going good how can we help mate, today uh, mate i've got a i've got a common goldfish he's about probably 10 years old but in the last few months his scales have started sort of um They've sort of been going apart and sort of raised up, mm. and and he's got he's about the size of half a tennis ball now. He's mm. absolutely huge, but I check him every day, and he's sort of like upside down swimming. Um, but he's still eating, and I think he's dead. But um, yeah, I, I go to grab him to take him out of the pond, and he's, he's still kicking. So he's still there with you. Yeah, I don't know what I can do. Um, well, that's a it's a really good age for a goldfish, uh, that's for sure, because they certainly don't live anywhere near that length, usually in the wild. Um, it's been a while since I've looked at some goldfish, and there's a couple of things that we know, and they're, they're pretty well susceptible to a lot of the types of infections, diseases, and conditions that we see in all other species, including people. So they're not yep. immune to things like infections. Um, yep. But also, I guess, as they get older, I'd be worried about the risk of tumours. Yeah, because he's, he's, yeah. he's, in, he's in a pond with probably a, a dozen other fish, yeah. and, they're, and, they're, and they're all roughly about the same age. But, yeah, he's, he's, the he's, only just, one. Got, he's just got really fat, yeah. So uh, it, it may be that he's either got an obstruction in uh, an organ, and obviously if he's swimming abnormally like that, we worry about their swim bladder can get an obstruction. Um, alternatively, he may have a mass, uh, which, you know, a tumour or a granuloma that's causing this problem. Now, there are yep. some avenues of trying to find out, but essentially it'll involve speaking to a veterinarian who's experienced with this and being able to take your fish in. Um, yep. And there's ways, you know, you need to set up a travel tank and so on. Um, yeah, well, I thought, I thought about taking it into the vet, but I've I wasn't too sure. Yeah, well, I'd certainly, you know, you probably need to ring and have a conversation because it's a scenario where you want to make sure that they have experience working with fish. And there's a few around in the, uh, you know, the listening area. There's a couple of vets who, if you uh, contact a few, either if your vet that you speak to or that you speak to normally can't help you, I'm sure they'll be able to point you in the right direction. And generally then... Uh, like we like we do with other animals, it may mean that we do. Uh, you know, I've even done X-rays and biopsies on goldfish to find out what's going on and surgery. So there are uh, some things that can be done, but essentially we'd be thinking along those lines: an infection, obstruction, or a tumour would be the probably the most likely thing. And obviously those scenarios aren't great, but um, there may be some things that can be done to help you out. So. All right. Well, I'll get in touch with my vet. Yeah. Thank you. No worries, no worries, mate. Thank you. Good Cheers. on you, Michael. To NURFM's Pet Chat with Dr. David mm. Tabbert and Daniel Carrington from the Pet Shop Boys, our sponsor this afternoon. David, I, I can't help but ask, and I'm sure people listening, surgery on a goldfish. Mm. Now, look, all jokes mm. and laughs aside, how do you actually perform it? What do you do? Well, you, first of all, you've got to put your scuba tank on. No, you don't. <laughs> you, 
I said, oh, I'm taking this really right, seriously. Come on. Oh, yeah. Um, well, it's a very good question, you know, how do you get the fish out of yeah. water and so on. And so what we do is that we... Uh, there's a number of different um, approaches, but one of the things that we do is uh, we have to anaesthetise them. Yeah. Okay. So we've got to provide pain relief and unconsciousness and muscle relaxation. That's the purpose of the anaesthetic. And so we can actually deliver the anaesthetic in the water. Okay. And so that uh, some of the medications can actually be absorbed into the fish that way. And then usually what happens is we the anaesthetic gets bubbled in. Uh, because a lot of anaesthetics come as gas. Of course. And so yeah. then we have to bubble it into the water. And so as the fish comes out, we might be running some uh, water with an anaesthetic in it directly over their gills so that ah, it gets absorbed. Of course, Just yeah. like what happens with people is that the anaesthetic is a liquid that gets turned into a gas that we breathe in through a tube uh-huh. into our lungs. And so if you think, well, a fish, their lungs are just on the outside. They're called gills. Uh, we just need to run the anaesthetic over those gills and they'll get absorbed. And, that's, and then you perform the surgery whilst that's happening? Yes, that's oh, right. It's fascinating. Yep. Uh, as fascinating as veterinarian work in remote and developing countries, tell us a little bit more because I know this is something you're thinking yeah, about. Yeah, um, I think I mentioned a little while ago, look, a, a friend of mine, uh, Dr Don Hudson from Noah's Ark, who went over after the disaster in Nepal, um, obviously there was a huge humanitarian effort. Mm. But, of course, there's this whole thing about uh, a lot of developing countries where there's a reliance on their agriculture. And so they needed some veterinary services on the ground. And when your country is crippled, that's when you can have people come in from outside. So Don was a a participant and um, greatly contributed and helped to get a lot of animals, which are actually, you know, for certain families, their animals may be their lifeblood. Livelihood, yes. Yeah, no, they're producing milk or whatever. So... It was a really important role, and and, uh, for people who can fulfil that role, I think it's a great effort. And another friend of mine uh, who recently was working in the Hunter and is now um, working with the World Veterinary Association, teaching uh, students and uh, teaching um, villagers in... uh, Currently, I think, this week, she's in Granada. Oh, okay. So working for the World Veterinary Association. And um, also in Australia, we've got a group that's very strongly run. It's called Vets Beyond Borders. Oh, so, so is that a bit like Doctors mm, Without Borders, so Vets yeah. Beyond Borders? And they actually uh, go to, obviously, a lot of areas, say, in the um, subcontinent, India and uh, Bangladesh and so on, and also up into Southeast Asia and perform similar roles, just doing that outreach, bringing the skills and ability. And the, the very important thing about these roles is that it's not just about going in there and fixing the problem today because that's an easy thing to do and then you go home and you feel good but really you haven't you know advanced the skill level in the country so a very important role is the training of the para veterinary professionals the you know the veterinarians who are there on the ground they may not have access to the training that we have and they get skilled up as well so it's a transfer of services sure but it's more importantly it's a transfer of knowledge do you, do you find that it's a bit of a two-way street and a vet, veterinarian going to a developing country may meet with villagers that are experts in keeping their goats and, and they may in fact give you ways mm. of doing things that you, you haven't come across? I know that's kind of idealistic, but does it happen? It does, and um, I, ha- I have seen uh, Don, for instance, had uh, written some articles and, and so on about his experience in Nepal and you know, you're confronted with these circumstances where in Australia the thing might be, well, we've got a thousand cows and if one's sick, you know, we, we're not going to be able to afford the vet to do this, this and this. 
these are families that are just relying on that one animal. Yeah. And so it's that real connection with the, the, I guess, the absolute culture, the substance of what these countries experience, not just in the time of tragedy, but in the time of, of goodness when they're able to go on and grow and you're giving them that head start for sure. And I, you know, for all of us when travel, whether it's professionally yeah. or otherwise, you always come back with that experience grows you as a person as well. I think it's one of the charities, maybe Oxfam, or one of those where you can actually buy um, with your money. It goes towards providing an animal for a family. Mm. Uh, it's a fantastic idea, uh, and, and it's sort of giving people what they need and what they can really use. Most. Well, if you think about, you know, in uh, as I said, there's a great humanitarian loss in, in Nepal, but if you're a family where, you know, your house was spared but uh, a landslide took out your cow and the shed mm. and whatever, how do you how do you recover from that when it might have taken a generation to save, to buy a cow, for instance? Exactly, no. How, and, you know, obviously insurance is hardly going to be uh, prevalent, so how do you get back on your feet with that? And yeah. I think that's where the role of, and probably the responsibility of us as a developed country to be able to step up and say we can help out, we can reach over and help out yeah. here. And also Cathy who's got a grass-chewing kitten or a puppy dog, which one is it Cathy? Well, they're both an inside cat and dog. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, well, a cat's an inside cat. But when they go outside and eat grass, and my daughter's um, actually got the cat catnip grass and she's grown that oh yep they'll come back inside and spew it all up mm, that's the that's the unpleasant part of it all isn't it mm. so, so is, why is, is that your, your dog's doing this as well yes well wow, that's really interesting and look we we see animals will do this for a number of different reasons and <clears throat> we're I'm going to suggest that there's behavioural components here. Just We're seeing two, two animals doing it. and So it may have started with one for a different reason, but now it's something that they just do. So the reasons that we see, some people say, oh, dogs will do it to make themselves vomit because they know they have worms or something. I don't hold much in that. I think that, you know, we don't know when we've got worms. Um... So I really don't know that uh, no, well, pets are able he, to work that out. Them, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that uh, what we tend to see is um, they'll eat they'll eat for grass primarily because I think it's just there and they lick it and they don't mind the taste and so they'll start chewing. Now some animals will do it as a displacement behaviour. So if they're distressed about something or a little bit anxious about something, they'll just go and eat because the grass is there and they can eat. And it's just that repetitive chewing nature. And it obviously just gives them something to chew on. And so it can be used as an anxiety-relieving action. Some animals actually like it. And as you said, if you've got catnip, for instance, the grass, some cats are very attracted to that. They'll actually start eating that and then they might transfer that behaviour. You know, they just enjoy the chewing. And usually with dogs, it's sometimes seen as more signs of an upset stomach, and I certainly have seen that. But like you, I've like even my dog will sometimes just eat grass because she can. And luckily for me, my dog doesn't vomit though, and it's mm. just variable, you know, between animals yeah. as to well, how much they the, eat and whether they vomit. The cat 
know, when I go over, wants me to give it a piece of grass through the door. It's like, you know, like a little (laughs) plaything. Yeah. Pick a bit of grass, nanny. And and, uh, as, you know, that sort of interaction, that's feeding into that behaviour of reinforcing the interaction with you. It's just the grass is part of the the way of starting the conversation, if you like. So, you know, there may be other things that you can uh, give them. And if certainly if you go down to your pet store and start talking about this, you'll find, look, there's this toy that's more interactive that actually would be a good way to transition from eating the grass. Let's start, when they start to do that, whether it's because of anxiety or it's just fun or whatever it is, let's see if we can switch them over to this other activity because that's, you know, they're not going to vomit afterwards, for instance. Well, there are toys that have some sort of um, something inside of them. Yeah, there's a couple, like more so for dogs than cats, but um, some of the things we use for dogs are like the Kongs, and you can actually put food inside them, or there's these balls, and as they roll around, they might drop a treat out every now and again. Yeah, but also there's like little toys that um, have like um, some sort of herbal thing inside Mm, of them. Yep, and they're, they're very attractive to them i think along the same lines as the uh, catnip. catnip yeah it's a cat toy that's, that's got what catnip. it is but you can also buy the catnip spray for example which then is sprayed onto the toy um so yeah that that works well all right all right then kathy look hopefully that'll get uh, the kitty and puppy back in the good books at your place and you've got to get them oh. off the grass by the sound of it thank you so much <laughs> for your call now we've got a gorgeous little dog this afternoon called Lovable Lottie. Daniel, are you going to tell us, or who's David? Are you going to tell us about? Lottie? I can, I can do it. I can do it. But you know, don't make jokes because <laughs> I have to concentrate. Sorry, I'm just I'm just a funny girl. Just ask me. <laughs> now, Lottie's a nine-year-old female Kelpie cross Labrador. What a lovely mix! And she's black and she's beautiful. Now, she's very well behaved, she's got good manners, she's polite and friendly, she's very placid, and because she's older, she's not like a puppy or young dog being jumpy and boisterous. She fits in really well with uh, any environment. She's currently living with a family that's got three children that are 10, 7 and 3, and she loves all of them to bits and is very playful with all the children. So she's excellent in a home environment with not just one or two people, but a whole family. The great thing with her is too is that she loves walking but she also loves being outdoors but loves being indoors as well and loves to get a belly scratch and a pat. Uh, She has done some basic obedience training so she's really good at sitting and staying and coming when she's called. So if you'd like to know a bit more about um, uh, Lottie, you can call Anita on 0400 one zero seven six zero three. They also have photos of her up on dogs dogrescuenewcastle.com.au and there's a photo of Lottie and information on Lottie on the community page of two and If you just head along to two and and click on the community page and scroll all the way to the bottom you'll see her shiny, lovely little face smiling back at you. She looks nice. She, she is, she's beautiful. And one other thing I didn't mention is which is great for dogs. She loves playing, playing fetch. Oh, so she can actually do that already? She can already do that, which is really good because you can take her to a park. Mm. Remember, she comes back as well um, and you can play fetch and she can wear herself out playing fetch. It sounds like she, she sounds like she'd be a really mm. cool dog. Speaking of cool dogs, Dr. David Tabret has got a cool dog. Oh, a new, don't say that. 
a new little puppy. Come on. I, I don't think they're cool. No. <laughs> what? Why Moranas are cool? Yeah. In in in. Danny's biased. No. Now come on. A little Aussie bulldog. An Aussie puppy. bulldog. So not yeah. a British bulldog. They look a bit like a British they bulldog. They do. Um, they're a crossbred dog away from, but the base is the British bulldog. Okay. Okay. And so some of the concerns around uh, confirmation with the British bulldog, people have tried to alleviate that. And uh, but the Aussie bulldog's a much bigger dog. Okay. I was what? a bit surprised actually. Well, yeah. Um, how, how old is she and how heavy is she already? She's ten kilo, <laughs> and uh, twelve weeks old. And what have you called her? That's the important thing. Amy. Oh, Amy. Such a, such a tough name. Amy. Thanks, guys. I'll catch Thanks. you Bye. shortly. Thanks, Meryl. It's pet chat here on Two N U R F M. Meryl in the morning.